I feel after that um, it would be appropriate to just be still for a moment and pray. So let's do that, friends. Join me with your hearts and your minds. Gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as now we have settled into this space for worship, as we have lifted prayers already, we've lifted voices in song, now we just want to fully embrace and welcome the presence of your spirit. Let us now just live into this promise. We're not going to ask for it now, we're going to live into it. Your spirit is here as we have gathered in your name and we have come to worship you. So let us experience uh, a word from you, a touch from you, a pushing, a prompt from you so that none of us would leave this space uh, without that which we stand in need of. So give us again that inspiration, give us that push or that prod. Lord, call us maybe to a deeper confessional repentance. Lord, we come expectant, expectant because you promise to be present. You are with us. For this, we are grateful. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. I just want to highlight two things. The first is that if you smell something really, really good, it is because I've learned now that the kids to celebrate uh, the Lunar New Year are making dumplings. And that's just not fair for those of us that gather in here and worship. I mean, really, that is cruel that we are going to walk out and smell all of this delicious food. Uh, maybe we could um, steal a dumpling or two before the congregational meeting. The other thing I want to highlight is that we have relaunched now the Wednesday night Bible studies and Robin is leading a women's study. I'm gonna be leading a men's study. That's how it's gonna be for at least the next 10 weeks. Who knows, then we could mix it up a little bit. But this is me just openly pleading. If you've got nothing better to do on Wednesday night, wait, no, if you have something else to do on Wednesday night, it's not better than gathering in God's house and being in the word and being together in a space where we can really mix and mingle and interact and talk. It's a beautiful thing. Uh, be here, join us. You won't leave disappointed. I think I can promise you that. And if nothing else, I'll tell Ruth to make dumplings and you'll all be happy. So that said, let us now get into God's word. We are gonna be continuing through our series, which lands us in Epiphany Tide. I know it's a weird word, it's a weird season. We actually haven't talked about it here at Connections before. But between Christmas and Easter, it's the season of Epiphany. And for us, it is really following the star, following the light, Jesus Christ. And it's gonna take us up to the cross. But what's gonna lead us into that Easter season I saw that, hey, there's actually seven weeks between Christmas and the start of Lent, that Easter season. And I had remembered from years ago from a book I had read that there are seven miracles or seven signs in the Gospel of John that he uses to really lead into the Easter story. And so we're just taking these seven weeks to go through those seven miracles. We'll do a quick recap in just a moment. But let me set up today's Third miracle, today's third sign. I think we've all had the experience of recognizing we've missed the obvious. 
Have you ever missed the obvious? You've missed the sign. You missed the thing right in front of your nose. It's right there. The only story that, well, the story that just, I know I've told it before, but it always comes to mind when I think about this human dynamic is when I asked Robin to marry me. It was uh, fall of 1996, if you can believe that. And I had been carrying around an engagement ring for about three months. I'd been, I literally had this engagement ring in my pockets, in my pocket for months now, because I was wanting to ask her to marry me at Christmas. But the day before Thanksgiving, I was going down to Geneva College up uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, was going to pick up Robin because she was Canadian and she needed to get her green card to stay in America. So I was going to ask her to marry me. No, she was uh, not going to have anything to do because she was Canadian. You know, they don't celebrate Thanksgiving at the normal time. Apologies to my Canadian friends. I was driving down there and I pulled into the campus and they had just had their first snow. And I thought, this is it, this has gotta happen. It's just a beautiful morning, a beautiful day, a fresh blanket of snow over God's creation. I parked the car, I ran down to this field that I know she'd have a great view of from her apartment. And I just tromped into the, into the snow, giant bubble letters that said, marry me. I ran up to the hill, I ran up to her apartment, I made some excuse why she'd have to come down and come to what would be the perfect place to see this proposal. I do all that, she comes down, I take her to the edge, I get down on one knee, I pull out the ring, she looks down at the uh, words on the field, she looks at me and she says, huh, I think you spelled Mary wrong. <laughs> and I stood up and I looked at it and I said, no, I think, I think I spelled it right. And she said, oh yeah, marriage has an I, but Mary doesn't have the I. Isn't that interesting? And we stood there just as awkwardly as this moment is for all of you. I stood there awkwardly with this proposal hanging in the air until I looked at her and I said, uh, you actually haven't said yes or no yet, Robin. And she was obviously avoiding answering the question. No, she wasn't. She said, of course. She said, yes, we hugged, we kissed. We went upstairs. She had actually made this beautiful sign. George is the best. I don't know, we, we have pictures of it all. It was actually a beautiful moment. And here we are nearly 25 years later. Uh, have you ever missed the obvious, the question that is being posed to you? And it's like you, you miss it. That is very much at the heart of this miracle that we're gonna unpack today. Missing the obvious, almost missing the question that Jesus is proposing to us because Jesus proposes a great question to this guy. Do you want to be well? And he doesn't really answer the question. And if we think about our lives, we actually do it with Jesus all the time. Jesus, do you want to be well? Jesus, I've been really wrestling with the problem of good and evil and why bad things even happen to good people. Why is that, Jesus? Do you want to be well? You know, I've been wondering, how does the whole creation thing work out? You know, six days of creation and a day of rest and what's up with the dinosaurs and how does that fit with modern science? And I really just wonder about this thing. Oh. Do you wanna be well? You know, I've been struggling with your sovereignty, which seems well attested in scripture, and human choice and free will, free will which also seems evident in, in the story of the Bible. How do those thing, two things mix in, in, in your domain, God? How do we hold that tension properly? Huh. Do you wanna be well? 
do you want to be? Those are good questions. We have great questions that we can bring to scripture, that we can bring to Jesus, that we can bring to the church community. They are great questions that we can spend a lifetime wrestling with, absolutely. But the question that Jesus is proposing to us, and this is what I'm gonna propose to you, the question that kind of kicks it off, the question that gets it all started, the question that opens the door into the relationship that we can have with Jesus, that can guide and sustain us through the questions, the ups and downs, the things of life, is so fundamental, we might miss how obvious it is. And the obvious question to us is, do you want to be well? Because I am offering you wellness. I'm offering you rest and restoration and healing and salvation. I'm offering you wellness through myself. Yes, or no. <laughs> but when I think about why that might be a hard question for us to face so bluntly, is that maybe it's kind of like a catch-22 situation, right? Maybe there's a catch-22 in this whole issue, this whole idea of wellness. Do you want to be well? Yes, I want to be well, is clearly the admission that we're not well. It's the admission that we're not all right. It's the admission that there are things in our life that are out of our control. They are out of our domain. They are out of our ability to fix the situation, whatever it might be. The answer, do you want to be well? Yes, I want to be well, is in itself a profound confession, an admission, a desperation that we might not want to always admit in our lives. But of course, the opposite is to say, no, I don't want to be well is in itself the same admission. I don't wanna be well, I don't wanna accept your help. I wanna do it on my own, I wanna figure this out. I don't care if it takes me my whole life. I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna muscle my way through this and figure out this problem on my own. So Jesus, thanks, but no thanks, I'll go my own way. But again, the question comes to all of us at some time, in some way, at some point in our lives, the question, the invitation, do you want the wellness? Do you want what I have to offer? Do you want what I'm willing to give you? Are you willing to step into this kind of a relationship with me and all that it might bring or change or transform in your life? Because as we're gonna unpack, Jesus's wellness does change, does transform. It does alter the game. So. Let's go to our third miracle, our third sign. And as I always like to say, of course, listen, nothing I'm about to say is gonna be any better than what God's word has to say. So hear God's word, knowing that this really is the best. This is our third miracle, our third sign. In John's gospel, we're gonna pick up right here in chapter five. I'm gonna turn because it's just much easier if I'm gonna read it over there. So sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who had, was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for such a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm going, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and he walked. The day on which this took place was Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's remember that we call them miracles, and well we should, for they are. For they are suspensions of or transcending the natural order, natural law, the natural things that God himself has put into the place in his good and orderly creation. But we call it a miracle because there are instances, there's moments when God does something for various reasons that it's not that they can't be explained. We can explain them theologically. We can explain them in the course of God's redemptive history, but they lack explanation from our natural order. And that's what a miracle is. And we get that intuitively and we've all wanted one like we talked about last week. But John keeps reminding us that these are signs. And what is a sign? A sign is a gesture or an action or an object used to convey information and instruction. And I want us to remember that. I want us to keep bringing that to mind each week as we move through these stories. These are signs, and they're going to convey for us some information that we have to get right. We have to put first. What information is this telling us about God, about Jesus, about his work in the world, about his mission, who he was, why he came? Why? What's the information that this is conveying? Only in light of that do we get the instruction. What does this mean for us and how we relate to God and continue his mission in the world and all that stuff. Now, quick recap. I won't be able to do this every week. But before we go too deep into the stories, let's remember that the first sign, the turning to water to wine in Cana, that was the first sign pointing to the last sign. And let's just remember that what this is telling us and how this can inform our lives is that there is a wedding yet to come. There is a celebration yet to come. There is a union coming of Jesus and his church. And we will raise the cup. We will feast at the table. It will get better and better and better throughout all of eternity. And Jesus was pointing us to that. The second Sign. The second miracle was when this official uh, had a need. And I summarize that because, again, 
each one of these signs or miracles, there is an invitation for us. And I wanted us just to have a bit of a framework, a paradigm for when we are needing a miracle, a movement of God in our life. The official needed something. It wasn't for himself, it was for his son. And all of us at different times in our life, we're just gonna, we're gonna be asking for a miracle, right? We're gonna be asking for God's intervention. The scripture seems to welcome and invite that. And what we learned and the way we put it is, and these are like principles, they're not like, again, hard and fast rules, but it's when you want a miracle, walk your mile, walk your marathon, put your skin in the game, show Jesus you are serious, you're invested, you're willing to go the distance. The second thing, don't take no for an answer. Don't get discouraged. Jesus didn't say yes at first. He kept prodding, Jesus, please come down to my house, heal my son. Again, I think that's the principle of the invitation for us to be persistent in our prayers, in our asking. It might not come overnight. It might not come in the next year. It might not come for 38 years, but be persistent in your asking. Then whenever you get a word, when you get a feeling, when you get a prompting, when you get the spirit welling up, go in faith. He goes back in faith before he knows that the miracle has been accomplished, that the prayer has been answered. He's willing to go in faith at the word of Jesus. And there's a point, I think, for all of us where we move forward in faith. And then the thing I just want to end on is what this story clearly pointed out to us was the greatest miracle is the gift of salvation because it ends with he and his whole family and his whole household believed. They put their belief in Jesus Christ as the son of God and as their Lord and their savior. And that's the greatest miracle that any of us can experience is that we can become the children of God receiving this gift of salvation through Jesus. And today, instead of having the uh, turning the water into wine, we're gonna call this one the whiner by the water. Jeez, I, need, I needed something, you know, like the whiner by, thank you, thank you, one courtesy clap. Uh, the whiner by, so let's unpack what's happening here. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Now I have to say, I gotta be the preacher nerd here for just a moment. What we're gonna see if we read through John's gospel is he keeps bringing us back to Jerusalem back to the Passover, back to these festival events, because Jesus is, of course, fulfilling all of the Old Testament promises. And John wants us to keep seeing how every time he comes back to Jerusalem, it's like he's fulfilling another festival promise, the Passover, the tabernacles, Pentecost itself. Jesus keeps fulfilling them. Here we're gonna see that he's actually just fulfilling the promise of the Sabbath because he does this healing on a Sabbath. It's the promise that we find our rest, we find our restoration in the worship of God. And when we worship Jesus, we find our rest and we find our, our, our restoration. So very simply, Jesus is like, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It is for you and the way you experience true Sabbath is through me. So there's like an obvious thing that's happening here that John is pointing out to us. Now, in order for this to happen, it says that Jesus goes up then to uh, Bethesda. Now, here's an interesting thing about Bethesda. For a long time, this was one of the arguments levied against Christianity in the Bible and Jesus. Ooh, imagine that. Some people have problems with Jesus and the Bible and faith. They said, well, we have all these details about where this should be, but we've never found this wonderful pool at Bethesda. So about a century ago, some people said, well, let's do a dig. And lo and behold, they found, I thought this is one of the times I should show the picture. Lo and behold, they found this. 
a giant pool with colonnades all around it. I just like to point these things out sometimes to say, you have very good reason to believe in the historicity of the Bible, of Jesus Christ, and the things which we build our faith upon. You ultimately can't make like this proof for God, but there's a lot of proofs in scripture to, to tell us this is reliable stuff to lean into. So that's pretty cool that we found that big, beautiful uh, pool and the colonnades there. Um, but opposed to being this big, beautiful colonnade, what we kind of get here is that this is more like one of these youth lit post-apocalyptic dystopian future kind of scenes because it says that the, that the, the, um, the infirmed, uh, the paralyzed, the blind, the sick, the ill, the diseased, you know, they all gathered at this pool, which kind of reminds me of church. Jesus is coming here on the Sabbath. He's, I just take great joy. I take great comfort in knowing that Jesus shows up where needy people gather. Jesus showed up where sick people gather. Jesus shows up where the lame, the blind, the paralyzed gather. So my invitation to all of y'all is to come here and to take off all of your airs, to put aside all of your facades and say, come and meet us, Jesus. We are gathering your poor, crippled, lame, needy people. Please show up in our midst. And that's what Jesus seems to love to do. Before he goes to the temple, he wants to go to where the needy people are. So he shows up at this pool. And I think we just take that as the principle. Show up here and lay before him all that you stand in need of. Amen, friends. We need to be happy. We need to be excited about that invitation of Jesus. And so He's gone up to Jerusalem for another festival celebration. It is the day of Sabbath, the day of worship, of rest. It is this time where he's going to go into the temple. But before he gets there, he wants to go to where the needy people are. And then we see uh, why the people are gathering here. Turn in your scriptures to verse 4 and see what it says about verse 4. Anybody find verse 4? I tricked you. Oh, I'm such a bad pastor. There is probably no verse four in your modern translation of the Bible. Oh, I get so excited about these things because I am such a nerd and I get it, except that there's a cool story about why your Bible does not have verse four in it. When they first started translating, they were making copies of the New Testament. And everybody took for granted there was a lot of collective knowledge about things that happened. And the obvious example that we often go to now for our culture, for our generation, is we can just say 9-11. And we get, we get all that that brings to that term. Um, but go out a couple generations from now and you might say 9-11. People are like, 9-11 what? The same thing. People knew that there is this story about this pool at Bethesda. And so one of the scribes, they put a little insertion that told the story about how they believed that when the water was stirred, it was an angel and then the first into the pool got the healing, but that was an insertion. And they started inserting to the Bible and then some scholars got together and they said, you know what? The earliest translations and manuscripts didn't have that. So let's make that a parenthetical statement uh, on the side. I say that because once again, that's how serious people of faith take the Bible. 
That's how serious we've taken the work of translation. That's how serious and open and honest we are about the scriptures, which should instill incredible faith in all of us that they would retain that, they would keep that, but they would pull that back out as a parenthetical statement to simply say the earliest manuscripts that we have had this as a parenthetical statement, not in the main body of the text. That's just cool stuff, right? Is that cool? Am I boring you? Are you interested in that stuff? I can be a nerd for like a long time, but otherwise I'll, I'll move on now. So we had this crazy thing unfolding, but then it gets down to this. Why are people are believing this story about this healing at this pool and the angel stirring the waters because, and think about this for just a moment, because it's a great story. There's just enough truth and evidence of it to make it believable. There's an actual pool there. It's a spring. There'd be times when water would bubble up and it would create these bubbles, it would create these ripples. There's enough evidence that's actually there and yet there's enough superstition that maybe there's something more to it. And there's something about us that likes to hold on to some of these superstitions, right? There's something about us like to hold on to these ideas that something bigger, something better, something more might be happening. One of the teachings for us, one of the instructions for us on this, of course, is going to be be very careful what you put your hopes in. Again, Jesus is going to be highlighting that. Are you going to put your hope in the story about an angel and the waters and the ripples? Or are you going to put your hope? Are you going to start putting your hope, your faith, your full trust in me? And he's going to be giving the evidence that is needed to put our trust into him. And so we finally get to the point. We finally get to the question. There it is. Jesus, unprompted, comes to this man, learns of his condition, and asks him, do you want to be well? And it seems, all this is built up from the beginning. It seems so obvious. Just say yes. Just cry out, hallelujah, amen, yes, and get on with it. And yet he doesn't. He doesn't seem to know what to do with the question, I love hanging around little kids. I love hanging around my little nephews because they remind me how kids know what they want to a fault. Oh my goodness, you just ask a kid what they want. I want ice cream. What do you want? I want you to pick me up and hold me. What do you want? I want to go to the, I mean, you just ask a kid what they want without filter, without facade. They will let you know what they want in that moment. And there's something beautiful, right, about children. There's something beautiful about just knowing what you want, asking a parent, asking an uncle, asking some loving adult in your life and receiving that which you want. But we're not kids anymore. We put the kids in their classroom so they can have fun with that. And then we come in here in adults and we have to recognize, and I think it really boils down to this. I've gotten what I wanted and it didn't always work out. Think about your own life for a little bit. You've gotten some of the things that you wanted so bad and then you stopped wanting it after you got it. For many of us, there's a time when all we wanted was for the woman we love to say yes. And then sometimes we've come to our point in our lives where all we've wanted was to be away from that person who said yes. There's a time in many of our lives when all we wanted was to have kids and to start a family. And then a couple years into it, all we want is a day away, a moment of peace, a moment of quiet. Can I just get away from these little monsters that I asked for and wanted so badly for so long? Some of us wanted a job more than anything else that we could have ever thought of. 
Now all we want is to be done with that stupid job that we have to go to every day that is driving us crazy. We have a conflicted relationship with our wants because we've wanted things and learned that that which we wanted disappointed, did not fulfill, did not come through. In fact, the thing we wanted became a burden. It became a, a millstone shackled to us that we don't know what to do with and dragging us down. And we're like, do I really know what I want? Do I really want wellness? Because what does wellness actually mean and require of me? To do some research for this, I, I did some reading and I found an illustration from a guy named Mark Batterson. I really like that he brought this out. He pointed out in light of this story, he said in the early 2000s, they actually had this meeting of the minds at Rockefeller University and they're gonna tackle the big health issues, the big wellness issues of America. So they said, what are the big wellness issues and what might we do? And as you can imagine, they got together, they uh, talked, they debated, they figured things out, they looked at their spreadsheets, whatever that means, and then they came up with this conclusion. And they ended up saying, we know exactly what people need to do to be well for all of the major wellness issues of our time and our, our people, but we are completely helpless to make them well. They're like, well, what do you mean? And they said, well, here's the five big health crisis issues. Uh, the big health crisis issues is uh, obesity and eating poorly, uh, lack of exercise, uh, smoking, uh, drinking and uh, drug abuse, and stress. And we know what to tell people to do. Uh, eat right. <laughs> and we know how to eat pretty well. Exercise regularly. You just got to get up and move a little bit. If you smoke, quit, because there's just nothing good to come from that. Uh, don't abuse drugs or alcohol. And for goodness sakes, get a good night's sleep and your stress levels will go down. And we know this, but people consistently choose not to do it. We can't make people well. Do you want to be well? Sure, I want to be well, except what does wellness require of me? What will this change in my life? What will this transform? And does the cost-benefit ratio actually work out? Because I'm not sure how bad what I have is if what I get or what changes requires more of me. It's called the principle of secondary gains. You've all experienced this as well. It was a fascinating article. You've all experienced this as well. We've all experienced secondary gains in our life whenever things don't go the way we think. We experience this as kids all the time. A little kid gets sick. Ah, oh, I got a sore throat. I got a temperature. Uh, oh, that's too bad. You know, you're going to have to stay home. Wait, what? I mean, I, I get to stay home then? Yeah, you're gonna have to stay home and play video games and watch Netflix and mom's maybe gonna stay home and make you chicken noodle soup and give you ice cream. Huh, maybe being sick ain't so bad. This is a pretty good perk here for not feeling well. We get these secondary gains. We get these perks from things uh, in, in, our, in our lives. Uh, you know, the pandemic hits, everything seems awful. Then people start working from home. Hey, maybe this isn't so bad. Maybe working out from home is just the thing. We get these secondary gains, these perks. And you think about this guy's life now. I mean, think about it just on the surface level. 
We take vacation time and we pay money to go to places where we can sit by the pool and hang out and do nothing for the day. And this guy's living it. In that sense, you'd say this guy, maybe he's come to the point where he's like, I think I'm maybe living the dream. <laughs> I get to hang out here all day. I get to be with my buddies. We get to hear the gossip going around town. We get some handouts, we get some food, we get what we need. And I'm literally poolside all day long. Maybe it's not such a bad life after all. Do, I wa do you want to be well? Well, if I got in the water, I, I feel like I could well get well, but everybody beats me there anyways. Well, you got to love about this story. And again, information, this is so much just about Jesus. This is compared to last week's miracle where the official was all in with faith and wanting the miracle. This guy, he is asked the question unprompted and he gets the answer without ever giving an answer. He's still talking about his story. He's still giving his woe is me tale. And Jesus is like, get up, pick up your mat and walk. It's kind of like, oh, okay, I guess. I guess this is it. I guess this is me. I guess this is now. And you can end the story right there. Um, and, and you'd be like, that's, that's the story we'd probably tell our, our Sunday school kids. But again, for us, the adults in the room who've struggled with understanding our wants and what it really means for our life, it goes on. And there's act two. And act two is the guy picks up his mat, he walks and he gets confronted by the religious leaders. And they're like, hey, what are you doing? You're carrying the mat. We don't carry mats on the Sabbath. And he's like, oh, the guy told me to get up and I got up and carry my mat. Who was it? And he honestly says, well, I, actually, I never found out. He slipped away before I ever found out. And then there's act three. Jesus goes to the temple and he finds him there at the temple. You got to like that. He didn't go back to the pool. He goes to the temple. He goes to the place of worship to give this guy credit where credit is due. He goes to the right place. But then he seems to just roll over on Jesus. Jesus confronts him. And he confronts him, and we're going, about, we're going to unpack this here now for a moment. He's like, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. And the guy's like, whoa, okay then. And he goes and he tells the religious leaders it was Jesus. So the guy's a narc. You mean the guy's a cad. You know, he's a Benedict Arnold. Like, what's, what, what, what is happening here? Again, when you read these stories, you're like, this isn't like the story you would tell if you were writing it yourself. So somebody must have obviously written it to tell us something beyond their own agenda because this becomes a very challenging story a very challenging sign for us when we live into this act two and this act three it's not just about jesus making a man well it's about the consequences of those actions for this man and for what it will mean for jesus later on in his ministry I want to lean into that thing where he says, see, you are well again. What we know from that, what we can infer appropriately from that is there was a time when this man was well. We don't know how well he was. Maybe it was just well through his infancy or well through his childhood. We don't know what happened exactly to make him unwell, but an unwellness came upon him that made him an invalid, unable to move on with his life. So there's a season where he is well, then there is a season where he was unwell, and now he is well again. But Jesus gives us this insight. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And those are some of the most challenging words from Jesus you're ever gonna hear. We really like 
one of the miracles in Luke where Jesus and the disciples encounter a blind man and the disciples may be coming out of this experience. And again, because we can be a superstitious lot in our own ways, they say, so who sinned? This guy or his parents that he's dealing with this problem. And Jesus says, neither of those. Sometimes there's just blindness and sometimes this can point to my glory. And he heals the man and he brings him glory. And yet this challenges us to say, there seems to be a consequence to this man's sin. Stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. There does seem to be the evidence of a sin sickness that can come upon our lives. A sin sickness that can plague us. A sin sickness that can make us an invalid in our own ways. And I would be pastorally negligent if I did not therefore encourage you. If there is an unwellness in your life, if there's an unwellness in your body, if there's an unwellness in your relationships, if there's an unwellness in your soul, if there's an unwellness about you, and I'm gonna let you be mature to ponder that, to pray about that, to think about that. If there's an unwellness in you, it would seem to be that sometimes that unwellness is one of the consequences of sinfulness. Now, we're used to hearing stop sinning and repent and receive the good news. Again, maybe we're just not used to saying there are sometimes consequences to the sin that we entertain in our lives. And that's bad news, right? There is sometimes consequences to the sins that we entertain in our lives. There can be consequences to entertaining the sins of hatred. There can be consequences to entertaining the sins of angerness, of bitterness, of malice, of rage. Those things we talk about in scripture. We see the consequences of broken relationships. We see the consequences. Uh, you know, I could preach a lot on that. And that's the hard news. But the good news is this. When you recognize the unwellness and you confess it to Jesus and you repent of your sins, there's the invitation for wellness and restoration again. There's always the invitation for wellness and restoration and the Sabbath of Jesus Christ, the rest and the worship of Jesus Christ. So let me invite Anna and Brittany to come back up. That's always my own cue to wrap it up here. Let me wrap it up for all of us. Let's go back to what signs do. What do signs do? They're gonna give us information and they're gonna give us some instruction. Here's our information about Jesus. Jesus knew everything about this guy's life. He knew the wellness before. He knew the unwellness in his life for 38 years. He knew it was the Sabbath. He knew the consequences of telling him, pick up your mat. And Jesus told him to do all of it. Even knowing the betrayal that would happen, Jesus still chose to heal this man. And here's what is so challenging, but so wonderful about Jesus. Usually, in most cases, miracles happen, again, with walking our mile, putting our in our prayers, putting our skin in the game. This guy isn't praying for it. This guy doesn't even say yes, and yet Jesus heals him. That should give us incredible joy and hope in the power of Jesus Christ. He is that much greater than all of us, that it does not depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. And yet the instruction for us is that intersection for recognizing the sometimes sin sickness that we experience in our lives. 
And so again, the invitation for us is to put our hope, to put our trust that Jesus will bring wellness when we confess and repent of our sins. I've been watching a show and the show points to a, um, uh, a saying that they have in the UK apparently. Uh, it's the hope that kills you. I like this story where they talked about that. It's the hope that kills you. And then even in that story, the guy calls out and he says, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. I think it's the hope you know, that brings change. It's the hope that brings transformation. It's the hope that brings joy. It's the, so hold on to the hope. Name your healing. This guy waited for 38 years. That's a long time to wait for a movement of God in your life. And so right here on the surface, I just wanna give you that encouragement, that invitation. Even if you've been asking for that miracle, even if you've been asking for that movement for year after year, decade after decade even, even don't lose hope. Don't lose hope in the one who heals. Keep bringing it before Jesus. You never know. You never know when your time is. You never know when the miracle can happen. Keep putting your hope in the one who can heal, but also the caution with that. If what is preventing you from the wellness that you desire in your life, be honest enough with, about yourself. Am I, am I actually just bringing this on by entertaining some kind of sin, soul, sickness that is making me unwell? I wanna end then with the invitation of prayer right now that whenever we come to Jesus and we repent and we confess, the scriptures are abundantly clear. He will in no wise cast us out or turn us away. So come to the one who offers wellness and healing for all of our souls. Let me pray for us, friends. And again, whenever I do this, uh, you know, this isn't just me saying a prayer. This is the invitation for you to make this prayer, make this your own, or even pray this on behalf of another person. So let me pray and we're gonna worship with one more song here.